You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia. Today we're going to talk about franchising and juicing and health and wellness. And with me today is Steve Schultz, who is the co-founder and CEO of Nectar Juice Bar. So welcome, Steve. First thing, just fill me in a little bit on your background in restaurants and what's kind of the background story uh, of Nectar. You know, uh, some people find it somewhat interesting in the sense of, you know, we started Nectar, my wife and I started Nectar in 2010. And neither of us uh, so much as have ever had a job in the restaurant space, whether it be as a waiter or a, uh, you know, or in the retail space. Um, so we went into it with the, you know little to no experience, uh, you know, at best. Uh, but we saw an opportunity and you know in the space, and uh, you know executed on that idea, which I'm sure we can get into. So I guess tell me, you know, what Nectar is about your menu. You know what you eat when you go there. Well, you know, what, if I go back to, to the, you know, the beginning stages of it, when I, I was, go, I was working out, I was going to the legacy brands of the world, the, you know, the Jambas and the Smoothie Kings and such, and thinking I was eating healthy. And lo and behold, I came to find out or believe that, uh, you know, a lot of those, uh, not to, you know, to, to, to bash on somebody else, but frankly, at that particular point, uh, you know, they'd become to a certain degree glorified Dairy Queens. And um, at that time, I thought that there was a seismic shift in the way people viewed health and wellness and, you know, food as medicine and such. And there's a proliferation of Whole Foods and um, Trader Joe's and things of that nature. And so when I started looking at the juice bar category, and I just come out of producing infomercials and the infomercial world got crushed in um, 2008 when the economy you know took a tank and the declines in credit cards and it was just very difficult to get a, a show produced because at the time i was actually trying to produce a show that was a juice cleanse um, and i couldn't get it produced because i couldn't ship a perishable product across the country uh, which then led me to when i was going to you know going to the legacy brand juice bars which then led me to nectar and i said you know what there's got to be a better way to do this and so I looked at it and I said, tell you what, what if we reinvent the juice bar space, similar to the way Starbucks reinvented the coffee experience in the early 90s? What if we went back to, you know, the authentic hope and goal of getting rid of, you know, the processed uh, junk that goes into a lot of things? And so the idea was to make it affordable, accessible, authentic, uh, you know, without the processed fillers. And so the juices, we came up with six juices, which were you know, parsley, kale, spinach, apple, things of that nature. In the smoothies, the only fillers were and are to this day, uh, coconut water and house-made nut milk made every day at, you know, all 180 locations uh, in-house and organic acai for acebos. Um, and the other the other two elements that, uh, that we tried to trigger were, uh, one is to make a, make healthy, uh, taste good, and make it affordable and make it accessible. And what I mean by that is a lot of time people view healthy eating as an elitist type experience. Um, and I wanted somebody from any walk of life to feel comfortable walking into Nectar. They didn't have to drive a Range Rover. They didn't have to go to Lululemon or do yoga. You know, they could work anywhere and be able to walk right in and, uh, and not be overwhelmed by the menu. The other thing I want to make sure that we had drinks that didn't taste necessarily like straight carrot juice and you had to choke it down. 
And the third thing is it had to be affordable. So uh, so that was the impetus, which really was started on a whim in the sense of, yeah, let's throw 50,000 bucks at it and let's see what happens. So there really was never a goal of when we started it to start, to, you know, two or three or four or five or six. It's just let's open this one and see what happens. So what are your current go-to items when you're there? So my, I, you know, personally, I always get a uh, ginger shot. Sometimes I'll get ginger and a turmeric shot with um, a uh, greenie, which is basically a green drink, uh, which gives me basically a lot of energy, a lot of nutrients. You know, the ginger obviously uh, is good for you know health, wellness, keeps colds away, good for digestion. So as far as my go-to things, uh, or if anybody ever has like, you know, the sniffle, so to speak, I recommend stopping by there and just get a fresh ginger shot because there's nothing like, I'm not frankly a huge ginger fan, but it really uh, knocks in all that stuff out of your system. It's very good for you. So what's the significance of the name? You know, the, we struggled with a lot of different names and, uh, you know, as things turned out, I I don't know why I was looking at uh, hummingbirds, but I was one day and, you know, and when I looked at it, the hummingbird, you know, searches for the juice of the gods, the juice of the jo- gods is nectar. And so then I came up with nectar, which made sense to me. Um, I didn't like the spelling of the way it was spelled. So I typed it in and it came up phonetically the way it is, uh, you know, the way we spell it with the, you know, backwards and upside down E. And so that's the, that's the uh, evolution of how we came up with the name. So you were talking a little bit about some of the people that you used to go to for smoothies and juices. Um, but who would you say is your competition and what sets you apart from them? You know, a lot of people have asked me that question, and I think that, yeah, um, and, I, and I wish I could give you a specific, you know, answer to that. Certainly, there's been a number of copycat. You know, we we started in 2010. You know, we were the first juice concept to offer acai bowls. You know, in the entire U.S., uh, we disrupted the space, and then four or five years later, like anybody, if you were successful, they copy you. Um, and so there's a few copycats out there, but I, you know, I view the legacy brands as more of a treat type brand. And what I mean by that is that the, you know, being a lifestyle brand, our season starts January 1st. People want to lose weight, get in shape, you know, health, wellness, all that kind of stuff. And so our doors just kind of bust open starting January 1st and goes all the way through about mid-October. A treats brand such as yogurt, such as ice cream, such as a lot of the, you know, legacy brands, they start around uh, spring break and go till Labor Day. So we have locations that are literally three or four doors down from some of the legacy brands. And those are some of our highest volume stores. So it's hard for me to say that we compete directly with the, uh, with the legacy brands and all the franchise. And we probably got a hundred, we've got about 180 open, about a hundred and some in the queue are in development in some, you know, uh, source or nature. And I don't think once uh, I've, somebody's asked me to, Hey, how do you compare to, you know, again, some of the legacy brands out there. I think that uh, people, frankly, are looking at different concepts. They might be looking at Nectar, but they also might be looking at a health, uh, you know, a gym or a different type deal. So uh, I'm somewhat reluctant uh, to say that, you know, this is who we follow because, frankly, I don't, uh, I pay attention to what other juice concepts are doing and coffee things are doing, but I don't really get, uh, it doesn't affect my uh, decision-making process very much or occupy too much time. So who's your customer? You know, our customers evolved, um, which is interesting. One thing that I find interesting that if you, go, again, certainly pre-pandemic, if you would go into the, and this is, I'll get to your answer in just one second here, but if you go to the uh, stores by the high schools, I always find it fascinating that you might find 
you know, 20 plus kids sitting in the stores, the girls drinking uh, green juices and the boys having acai bowls. You know, when I was growing up, you know, it was, uh, it was you know, Slurpees and Snickers at 7-Eleven. Um, so I think that's just an indication of the future. I think the, the parents are happy for the kids to spend a little bit more money, you know, the 99 cents for a, uh, you know, for a big gulp. Um, and then fundamentally, you know, we have a, a demographic that's, I'd say a majority, I don't know about majority, but obviously it's, it's, it's more heavily weighted female, probably 65% uh, female, 35, 30 years old to about 45, 50. Um, uh, an aspirational uh, uh, buyer or, or guest in the sense of that they're taking their first steps into, you know, living a healthier lifestyle. Um so I would say that's you know that's a prototypical guest that we would have. It's not uh, it's not somebody driving a fancy car. It's uh, we're in a lot of soccer mom neighborhoods. We're in a lot of uh, you know uh, places that you wouldn't normally believe to be the traditional uh, locations. Of course, we're in a lot of traditional locations, but then you know, we do try things that are just a little bit uh, a little bit different. So let's talk about the pandemic. What um... You know, what was that pandemic experience like for the brand? You know, obviously we came to realize that this was more than a, you know, something that was going to last a week or two, you know, come uh, come mid-March. I developed a team called Project Wellness. Um, and what I did is I assigned, you know, various people, you know, on our team, various tasks. Uh, we basically met daily. We made uh, uh, marketing decisions uh, based week by week. Uh, supply chains decisions, uh, you know, at the same time, um, and we basically very aggressively attacked uh, attacked the, you know, the the needs of our franchise partners, um, you know, and our corporate locations. We uh, we saw sales obviously, you know, plummet like a lot of people did initially. Uh, however, since then, starting in September, we started uh, copying positively. We've double digit comped. Uh, since then, you know, and and more, and I'm and I'm not talking from from 2020, but rather copying from 2000, you know, 18, 19 double digits, um, and we came out of it, frankly, with a you know a stronger PL, stronger balance sheet, uh, more locations opened. We probably opened ten new locations in the midst of the pandemic, starting in May, June, July, August, um, and uh, you know, so we were able, I think, to with the you know help of our franchise partners and you know our team really stepping up and the execution of project wellness, I think, uh, you know, really allowed us to, uh, to flourish, frankly. So do you think the numbers are so positive because people are, um, you know, actively interested, uh, even more so in wellness than they were before the pandemic? Yeah, I, I think, you know, health and wellness certainly is top of mind. You know, uh, I don't think, you know, when you have new year's resolutions, I don't think you hear very many people say, you know what, next year I want to eat, uh, you know, I ate way too many fruits and vegetables this year. I got to cut back next year, <laughs> you know, or I lost too much weight this year. I got to lose, I got to lose less weight next year, or I need to gain some weight. Uh, and so fundamentally what people want to do is they want to, I think that they want to start incorporating, uh, you know, healthy habits into the lifestyle and they understand, uh, you know, how it makes them feel. And, uh, and it becomes part of a day, daily ritual for, for many. So you were talking a little bit before about, um, you know, where, where you are and all the different places, but what is it about a location that says to you, this is where should we should be? You know, the traditional location is 
you know, it hasn't really changed, uh, you know, over the years in the sense of usually you look for, for us, when we, again, with the idea of being the Starbucks of juice, we follow somewhat of a, you know, a, a Starbucks type model in the sense of we'd like to be an inline center with a grocer, a, a pharmacy, a Starbucks, a health and wellness, like a yoga or Pilates or a spin studio, um, about 1200 square feet, give or take, um, you know, in a neighborhood center. And if we find a center like that, the chance of success in those uh, type centers is extremely high. We very rarely will uh, uh, fail or not do well in that traditional type center. And, um, you know, how, when you're making these decisions, you know, what do you, what do you turn to? Is it, do you, what do you, do you need like a, a specific kind of square footage um, and, uh, you know, and what makes that uh, attractive proposition depending on the lo different locations? You know, it is interesting because the pandemic has changed things quite a bit in the sense of, you know, pre-pandemic, we were about 28% either online or DSP, meaning third-party delivery services. Uh, Post-pandemic, including today, we're at, you know, 48.7% of sales. Uh, where we have certain locations now, they're up to, you know, 1,800 feet. Our traditional location is 12 to 1,400. And I think going forward, we simply don't need, you know, as many square feet, which uh, bodes well for a couple of different reasons. One is obviously it's less expensive to build. Uh, the occupancy costs and rents are a little bit lower. So, you know, we're looking at spaces rather than 12 to 1,400 feet. We're looking more in the 1,000 square feet. We're looking at pickup windows. Um, certain areas, areas of the country, we're looking at uh, drive-throughs. And uh, and like I said, we have quite a few opening with uh, with pickup windows and, uh, you know, and uh, uh, curbside delivery and things of that nature. So the, the design of the store does, has changed a little bit over the, uh, you know, Due to the uh, due to the pandemic. So you mentioned online ordering. How uh, you know what was the impact on that um, during the pandemic? Oh, it was huge. It uh, you know we were very lucky in the sense that we got we've always invested in technology. In 2016, you know I, we were one of the first in our space, or actually probably the first, you know, to really embrace it and invest quite a bit of money into it. You know, we started out with maybe about 10,000 people on our online ordering platform and our app. Um, I think of as of last week, last time I checked, I think we had 825,000 people, you know, uh, you know, on our app and using it on a, on a regular basis, uh, which is a which says something to our digital and RT team. They've really done a, a remarkable job compared to, you know, uh, people trying to catch up. Um, so because of the base that we had, we, because of what we had in place, we were able to send notifications, promotions, specials, orders, uh, optimize convenience, which again is what people are looking for. So, uh, so I thought it was a, I thought it was a very important, uh, important thing for us. So even before the pandemic, you were very digital forward with the brand. Yeah, yeah, before the yeah, starting in 2016, you know, every year I'm, I'm you know, I would say from our marketing perspective, our number one marketing efforts have always been digital first. Um and I think uh and I'm not talking about just the juice category in general, I'm just talking about other spaces. I think that you know, there were some people, you know, Domino's and others that were, you know, ahead of it and Starbucks certainly the leader in in this QSR type space and uh and for us, you know, we felt that that was an integral element that we had to incorporate uh, into people's lives. And again, the, the goal for us is to make it, you know, habitual type things so that people 
when they go to work rather than stopping at maybe a Starbucks, they stop, they get used to stop at Nectar, you know, one, three, five days a week, whatever it may be. And by having that uh, platform, you could jump out of the shower, hit favorite or repeat, or whatever it may be, get dressed, drive to work, pull up, somebody walk out, give you a drink, or you can get out of your car, walk inside and grab it, it's ready to go, and on the way you go to work. So, so it's very important. So what is it that makes Nectar franchisable? A couple of things. One is when we first, we opened in 2010, we probably had 10, 13 locations, give or take, open. And very early on, we started getting a lot of franchise inquiries. And I was reluctant to franchise um, simply because I was worried about the brand standards and the culture and all those kind of things. Um, and then finally in 2012, I said, I right, tell you what, I finally agreed to it. But I said, tell you what, we're going to grant, we're going to, we're going to award six uh, franchises in 2012. We're going to continue to grow corporate and we're not going to award a single franchise again until after a two year test is complete. And my belief on that was that, you know, if I didn't know how to run, if me and my team and, you know, if we didn't know how to run it, if we hadn't been through the ups and downs, the rainy days, the sunny days, the supply chain issues, pricing, cost of goods, labor metrics, all that kind of stuff. You know, I felt it would really be, you know, uh, very insincere uh, to try and sell a system to somebody else. And quite often I see these brands and it doesn't matter what space they're in that have one location, two, sometimes six or whatever. And I just have a hard time understanding how they're selling a system that they frankly don't really know how to run you know we built up 40 or 50 locations before we really went full steam into it so we tested it from 2012 to 14 then we took 2014 to 15 to really define the systems that we thought were necessary and then finally released formally released our franchise uh program in uh in 2015. i think you know we certainly could have sold a ton of franchises uh probably double or triple that we sold between 2010 and 15. Uh, whether we'd be open today or not is another story uh, simply because I thought that those experiences uh, and being patient, you know, with our growth was, you know, imperative to, to our success. And, you know, what do you look for in a franchise partner and, you know, what, what kind of things do you do to support them? You know, as far as what we're looking for, obviously we're looking for somebody that, uh, you know, is it a few things that, you know, interested in health, wellness, community, uh, looking for a sense of purpose, uh, because I think Nectar provides, you know, those, all those things. Um, it is a, uh, you know, it can be run to a great degree from an absentee perspective, you know, our financials are built. So it's not a, you know, an owner operated type brand. And we have, we have anywhere from, you know, multi-unit guys that come in to people who have never been in the restaurant space. And then as far as the support, I think that, uh, you know, we've had people, we've got our very first employee that, uh, that we hired to, uh, make juices at 17th Street, you know, 11 years later, who started when we were 16 years old, you know, still works for us today, as do many of the people. Um, and so I think that we have, you know, a lot of experience. Uh, we have people in the field, we have training, we have, you know, people dedicated to franchise and marketing support, uh, digital. So I think that the, you know, the support that you see in our franchise system compared to you know, even, you know, a traditional system is, uh, you know, is, is heavily invested in that uh, because again, the, you know, we all, we're only as successful as our franchise partners. And, you know, uh, if you don't invest in them, what's the point? You know, it's, a, it's sort of a silly, you know, exercise. So, so what I always look at is franchise first. So when the, the kids come in and work, I'm, 
I always say you just you got to put your hat on and pretend that you're a franchisee, you know, and think like they do. So, so are there any particular areas of the country or areas of the world where you're looking to grow via franchising? You know, yeah, that's another thing I think was important. You know, from a corporate perspective, what what I did was, again, I felt it was important that we, uh, you know, that we had proof of concept in a variety of different markets, meaning that the you know, a, uh, you know, a treats brand is only going to do so well in a cold weather climate. And so I wasn't so sure how we would do. So therefore I wanted to take our own money, meaning our corporate, our corporate dollars and my own money. And so we opened in Colorado, we opened in, you know, Houston and Dallas, we've got stores opened in, you know, Minnesota and California, Northern California and Southern. Um, and so it's interesting. So it's, we've been able to, you know, some of our top stores are in Colorado. So, you know, that would surprise people that, uh, you know, that we do very well in cold weather climates. Um, uh, the natural inclination, which is what we, we did do, is we filled in basically the, you know, the, the, the sun belt from, you know, Southern California through Arizona, Texas, and so forth. You know, and now we're starting to fill up the, uh, you know, the middle of the country. And, you know, there's a lot of white, white space out there. There's interest, you know, in all 50 states and in other countries. But at the same time, we also want to make sure that when we open location, we have a support mechanism in place to support it. Otherwise, we will, we will, we will uh, refrain from going into a, you know, a city, a state, a region, you know, if we don't believe, you know, that, uh, that it's ready for it yet. You kind of answered this question a, a little bit in what you were talking a bit about the, you know, supporting the franchisees and all of the effort that you put into putting the system in place and, you know, and with the product uh, when you first started. But, you know, how do you grow and kind of maintain quality control? You know, and that kind of goes to what I was mentioning a moment ago is that you see some brands, and again, it's not just to this, just to apply to Nectar, but a lot of it, a lot of people, I think, grow too fast. I think that they use sometimes the franchise uh, uh, fees to, you know, sort of fund their growth. And so they accept franchises uh, and franchise partners necessarily where they shouldn't. So using an example, had Nectar started and we opened one store in St. Louis and one in Atlanta and one in Minneapolis and one in Cleveland, you know, the idea that we could fly somebody out to each of those cities to give them the, you know, the continual, you know, three, four times a year, training and support and supply chain and things of that nature would be you know unrealistic so that's that's why i like to build density in the areas that we are we signed a 50 million dollar contract with cisco uh which basically allowed our franchise partners to get you know premium you know premium but you know pricing is well below what you know they would pay as their own you know uh independent or individual juice bars. Now to do that, there's got to be some densities in the areas because the opcos frankly don't want to carry a lot of product if it's just one location. So if I go into a new city, I usually like to go in there with three locations so that uh, I can optimize the support, I can optimize the buying power of uh, you know of our, our abilities and our franchise partners and also build the brand awareness. So I think that uh, you know I look at it as a you know sort of a a plotted theory of, you know, let's put in two to three locations, not certainly the same day, but start with one, nine months later, another one, another nine months, another one, put them three to five miles apart, and then kind of spread out, you know, kind of like a spider and, you know, build that, uh, build and own that territory. So what are currently some of the key challenges to growing the brand? You know, any brand has, you know, their, you know, their own 
individual, you know, challenges. I think that with the new partners, a lot of times um, it's making sure that, you know, we've already been through a lot of experiences, not a lot, we've been through almost everything that people have been through. And, you know, sometimes I think people, you know, believe that uh, they may have better ideas than we do. And sometimes they do, but often when it comes to, you know, real estate or how to do something, uh, you know, we've been there, we've done it, we've tried it. And so, you know, making sure that we keep people, you know, online and in the system, I think is important. I think that making sure that they continue to do the local store marketing uh, campaigns, I think is very important. Um, and as far as the, uh, the, you know, the growth of it, uh, you know, the, the challenge, uh, challenges of it are just, you know, just, you know, trying to maintain a balance between, uh, you know, you want, you have to maintain the quality of your franchise partners, the, the quality of the product, uh, and your brand standards. And so it's sort of a balancing act between all three. So I think we've been able to do a nice job of it, uh, but it can be a challenge for us and the franchise partners at times. So one of the things that I was reading about you was about, um, curiosity. So how do you inspire a whole culture of curiosity? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I've got a whole, uh, you know, I won't bore you on the details of it, you know, right now, but, uh, you know, I've got my own thoughts on, you know, curiosity and motivation and things like that in the sense of, I just don't, you know, I think that, uh, I think there's going to be disruption in the whole space of motivation because I think that people often are, you know, led down a bad path, but, <laughs> but that's for another, that's, that's for another day and another conversation, you know, as far as the, the curiosity component is concerned, you know, I always have been a fundamentally curious person. And I think that, you know, when we look for people in Nectar, you know, what we're looking for is people that are, you know, and it, it, they've got to be curious and interested in the process and not necessarily the product. And what I mean by that is people always say, hey, do what you're passionate about, the money will come. You know, when I was 10 years old, you know, I didn't dream that, hey, when I was 50, I want to make smoothies and juices, you know what I mean? Um, but I could not be more passionate about Nectar, but the passion comes from the people, from the community, from, you know, the engagement, uh, you know, from the results and the process of what you do. So when we look at at, uh, at franchise partners, we talk more about, you know, one, yes, they're passionate about the product, uh, they, they're passionate about health and wellness, but more so they're really passionate about the people, um, you know, and our belief has always been that if, you know, if, if we invest in the team members, I mean, if I invest in our team members and they, uh, they're in a better mood, uh, they make a good juice. They're happy when they pass off to the guest. And then the guest is happy when they walk during the drink and they're in a better mood when they walked in, than they walked out. Then, uh, assuming we're, you know, responsible with cost of goods and labor at the end of the day, you know, everybody's going to do okay and make a few bucks. And fundamentally that's the way we've you know managed the business, uh, since day one. And we continue to manage it, you know, that way today. So what kind of advice would you give to someone who, you know, has looked at your career and says, you know, I, I want to do that? You know, I, you know, I would say do it. I, you, know, <laughs> you know, there's so many hindrances. I think that uh, my advice to them would be don't listen to the white noise. Uh, don't listen to that inner voice. I think that, you know, people's inner voices are made up, you know, whether it be your mom, your dad, your friends, the influence of others or teachers. Um, I think that, you know, often uh, you have an idea, you sit around the dinner table or the soccer game and tell your friends about the idea. Quite often they'll knock the idea down. Um, 
And I think that you've, you know, or even today, people often will give me advice on what I should do. And I'll smile politely, but frankly, won't really pay too much attention to what they have to say, unless it's somebody that I seek out or if it's a topic of interest. So I think that, you know, people really have to, to block out the white noise, go with their intuition, believe in what they're doing. Um, if they fail, that's okay. Just get up and do it again. Um, but, you know, you really do. You, you can't be uh, dissuaded by those, you know, the, that inner voice that is so dominant in your head. And you can't be influenced by that white noise of others trying to give you advice and telling you what's right or wrong or what to do or not do and, uh, and be afraid. And I think that's the difference in what's going to really make somebody successful and what's not. And uh, if they can do that, then that allows people to take action. And if they take action and they follow, and, and why I think franchising is such a great, great thing is that then you have a system already. You know, we've built a system over the last 11 years and it's a, it's a tried and true system. It works. Um, so fundamentally, you know, you've, they've got the inner voice, they've got the white noise. That's, you know, kind of out of the way. They understand it. And then to take action, if they've got their own idea, great, execute on it. And if they want to get involved with a system already in place, sort of a, you know, a precursor to things, uh, you know, then it's a little bit easier because I think that, uh, you know, they've, they've learned on, you know, on our dime, you know, we've spent millions of dollars, made millions of mistakes, you know, but those mistakes aren't going to happen again and they get to take advantage of that. So I think it's a, uh, a great opportunity for people to do that. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is great.